Hey, so this is my second attempt at doing a more conversational podcast, and this time it's with a friend of mine, Ben Jenkins, who is a high school teacher. I think it's a good conversation. I will say this. We do get into some difficult personal experiences, and therefore, for both of us, this is a little harder to share. I would also say that we talk about something Ben did that some people thought was bad, and we refer to this as kicking the cat. I didn't know what that action was until after we talked, and he told me. And while he said that he thought it was really bad, personally, I don't see it as being nearly as bad as he describes. Instead of an 8, maybe it's a 2 at best. He did not hurt anyone. In fact, he was and is trying to help someone only in perhaps a non-traditional way that some people are uncomfortable with. The point of the story, however, is more the difficulty of sharing what he did with the people he's closest to. And I think that's fascinating to hear about. Okay, that's it. If you have any feedback, as always, I would love to hear it. Um, I lie a lot casually. I lie a lot casually, and that's not good. No. But um, sometimes it doesn't matter. But other times, I'm just doing it for no good reason. So that's that doesn't make sense. And I used to do it more than I do now. Why do you do it? It's easier. Mm-hmm. It's easier to be a people pleaser. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have to stop and say, like, okay, someone, you know, someone said, oh, what did you think of the game last night? Instead of saying, oh, I didn't watch the game. Baseball's stupid. You're like, um, oh, I, I heard they lost by three. Like, you just kind of dance around it. That's not a lie. No, but then they're going to go into all the details of the game and you're going to end up like nodding your head and sipping your coffee instead of saying baseball is stupid. That's not a lie. You don't have to tell people the unvarnished truth. I don't think. I don't think people want to hear the unvarnished truth. I know they don't want to hear it, but I'm just saying... uh, So that's the thing I've been thinking about is how to be more myself. Um, And not from a convenience standpoint. Like I'm not sad I've wasted so much time listening to people talk about baseball. I feel bad not being truthful about the fact I don't like baseball. Okay. Just like, I mean, this is true. Like, I really don't like baseball, but also just to say, you know, like there's important parts of our personality and you shouldn't falsely present or allow people to presume extensively false things about you. Otherwise you end up where people are like, oh, so-and-so, I heard you love octopuses. Here's this really cool towel with an octopus on it. I saw it at, I saw it at Kohl's and it was half off, so I got it for you. And you end up with all this octopus stuff and you don't even like octopuses. <laughs> right. Um, and so that's why, like, that's the kind of stuff really does happen all the time. I mean, not with towels, but you know what I mean. Sounds like a Larry David episode. Because it's real. And because it comes from trying not to hurt people's feelings. Is that where it comes from? Because part of me says, first of all, I don't think, I think you're being a little hard on yourself. I yeah. don't think you're lying at least in that case. But I do understand this idea of trying to keep the peace 
or trying to get along with people and obfuscating or concealing the truth in order to do that. And part of me says, yes, you're doing it because you don't want to hurt their feelings. But part of me says, we do it because we're cowards and we don't want... Rock the boat. Yeah, we don't want a scene. We don't want to have to reveal that we don't agree about something and therefore get into a fight. How is this going to change how the person views me? Will they not like me anymore? Will they tell other people, oh my God, Ben doesn't like baseball. What's Mm -hmm. wrong with that guy? We can't be friends with him anymore. So I don't think it's just about protecting them. It's protecting yourself. I agree, but that's pretty selfish. If you have to decide what's the line between like, okay, how much do I owe it to myself to be honest, which is not something I, I used to think about a lot, but I know, you know, I know people and I've talked to people who have said like, these people worked really, really hard to really be true to themselves, like all the time, you know, whether it's vegetarianism or that kind of thing. And some of these people, it is like lifestyle choices where they really like, they're like, okay, I really think this is wrong. So that means I have to do the, the tough, rough choice and like, spend $10 on ice cream instead of $2 on ice cream to do the thing that I think is right to be who I should be. And they're not doing it to impress anyone. They're doing it because they want to be outside who they want to be inside. Does that make sense? It does. So I know lots of people like that, and I didn't really think about it before. And I don't think they're better than me, but I think their path is a good path to be happier than me. Sounds exhausting. It is exhausting, but once you start it, it's probably automatic. Like my accidental line, it's only happening because I'm not stopping and thinking about it. It's a habit that once you break, you'll be fine. Right. Like always um, always putting your keys in the same place when you come home. It's annoying, but if you do it, you save yourself so much time in the long run. Right. Develop the good habit. Mm-hmm. Train yourself. Right. I think Peterson said something like that where he said for a long time, he was doing exactly what you said. He, was, he wasn't lying. But he would say things that weren't truthful. And he said, every time I did it, I felt bad inside. Some little part of me rebelled. And he said the way he solved it was he started to listen to that little voice. And every time it talked, he didn't say what he was going to say. Mm -hmm. I think he first started just not saying anything. It was first approval by... Emitting. Emitting, yeah. And then when he thought he could say something that was truthful, he would do it. But I agree. I think it's something that takes practice and very uncomfortable practice for a while. Well, part of it is you have to tell people, you have to tell people you've been lying is the bad news. Like the only person I've really talked to about this besides you, um, they're like, blah, blah, blah. They're like, Jenkins, I always tell you the truth. I'm like, well, what does that mean? Like, I always tell the truth. I'm like, no one always tells the truth. And then this went into like half an hour where basically they said that they always tell the truth in almost everything. And when they leave things out, they just omit them. They don't lie. And they could not believe when, like, all the examples I gave. I'm like, what about blah, blah, blah? Like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, I'm totally lying there. Like, it made me feel like I was lying 75% of my life, which isn't true. It's probably like 15. But it was still a crazy percentage when they're doing zero.
I do think I do think it makes you weaker. Oh. Because there's this it's almost like there's two plates, like in plate tectonics, oh. and you want them aligned. You're forcing friction. Yeah, and every time you you act at contrary angles to your beliefs or who you really are, yeah, either there's an earthquake. There's yeah, there's friction. Uh, I thought of an example. Um, a lot of people, and I don't know if it's something that should become more popular nowadays with, you know, people have phones more so they can move everything a little faster. Um, there's a lot of references to things, like people might refer to a movie, mm-hmm. like, oh, it's like so-and-so and such-and-such, and I've never seen this movie, and I don't even know who that actor is, because I have a terrible memory with actor names. But you fake along, like, oh, yeah, that part, blah, blah, blah. But people make so many more references nowadays that that comes up a lot more. Or people be like, oh, it's like that one meme, blah, blah. I have no idea what the heck they're talking about. But this sounds like the baseball example. Yes, this is all social lubrication stuff. Right. Um, but but you're, I'm actively lying usually. Like I'm not just not saying that I don't know what that is. I'm saying like, oh, yeah, blah, blah, blah. And sometimes it'll go, like, go into deeper detail. Then I have to be like, oh, I don't, I don't know this movie. I was thinking of something else, which is true. Um, right, but uh, and then and then they're disappointed because they were trying to explain something, and now they just like let go of the whole thing. Right, as lies go, that does seem minor, but you're right. right it it's happens still... all the time, so it's a frequency issue. Yeah, and I'm pretending to be more well read. Like it's a the reason why I'm, it, it lodged in my head as something that's bad is because you're faking being more cultured than you are. You know, be like if someone's like, oh, have you ever had? You know, what's your favorite eggs? And instead of scrambled eggs, you're like, oh, I love eggs Benedict, but you have to have the arugula just for, or some like other, you know what I mean? <laughs> right. It would be like doing that, where your lie would be all about social currency and you'd be lying to make yourself seem better, which makes it a worse lie. Are you afraid of being seen as uncultured? Yeah. Well, yes, or like, I'm, afra- I'm not afraid, but uh, I don't want to disappoint the other person and um, you don't want to look stupid. It's not uncultured, it's stupid. Like, you're stupid if you don't know these things. Though, of course, ignorant would be the better word, but no, the other person's going to think you're stupid. Will the other person think you're stupid, or do you think the other person will find you stupid? Oh, I've been called stupid when I've been like, oh, I've never seen it. They're like, what's wrong with you? Blah, blah, blah. It's like, I don't know. Your reference is dumb, and I haven't done it. Okay. Let's talk about magic cards. Right. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. Like, their, their subculture and my subculture are both different and weird. Right. But I'm not going to value theirs more than mine. Because I know both are goofy. I mean, it sounds like the person you're talking to is a dick. They are. They are. But this is, uh, there's several people. Are these we people... all have people in our lives like cousins or co-workers where they're not your favorite people, but you have to interact with them repeatedly and a lot. So I disagree with that. I mean, outside of work colleagues, and even there, I'm not sure it's true. I feel like if there are people in your life who are full of negative emotion, who you're uncomfortable around not because of you, but because they're, they're bad people. You don't unpleasant unpleasant people. You're right. Bad's too harsh. Unpleasant people. You don't, you walk away. You, you cut them out of your life. You don't diminish yourself to please them. Well, that's why I threw cousins in the example. Cause that's the kind of thing where there's social obligations you have to do. Why? Um, cause you know, you have like get togethers and stuff and you're standing there and you know, people are talking and things. So I think, I think the example I'm saying will make sense to most people. Okay. Where we all have those experiences or you're at a dinner party and it's, um, you're at a dinner party and it's, um, 
you know, like it's just okay. I've got two hours here till I can leave. Right. So I'm going to pass the time, and so you have to. So okay. So let me interact with people. I'm just thinking out loud here, but what's wrong with saying a I don't know. Teach me, because yeah. I think people like that. It's sometimes they do. Sometimes they do, because I've done that as well. Um, you know, like with my summer job, there was a lot of talking to people. And it would be a lot of like, oh, you're from X. What's, what's cool about that town? And it's just a chance for them, to, for them to schmooze while you're doing the other things you're doing. Right. Um, and so that was really good. And it, you're right. People, of course, like talking about themselves. Um, but usually, like with all this referential stuff, um, they're just trying to get to the gist of the matter. Like, you know, if you don't know Batman versus Superman, then it's too hard to explain the whole thing to you when all they want to talk about is um, that the two moms had the same name, you know, or, or whatever. Like, whatever the key is, it's not worth the whole movie to get to the key. And so they just drop the whole thing. So most people aren't willing to put the effort in because they're used to having everyone recognize it and, and have it be fast. And, and one thing I think this is, which I've been dancing around, but I'm just saying saying um is it's generational it's generational these people are all like in their 20s so your movies and my movies are not their movies um for example i'm much more likely to make a batman joke about um mr freeze you know the arnold schwarzenegger batman than i am to make a batman joke about you know like the batman that came batman versus superman right and with batman okay well that seems very different because so part of it is i'm trying not to accentuate the generational differences because that's alienating like, that'll make them feel young and stupid or make me feel old and out of it. And neither one of those two things will be helpful to, like, I still have two hours left at this dinner party. Right. Yeah, I mean, that makes me more sympathetic for the other person. That To me, that's not them being unpleasant. That's them trying to establish a connection. And they think they're referencing they common... They all the co- references are good, yeah. yeah. Not just good, but just common. Mm-hmm. Right, so they're like... Because I've always been told that one of the ways to get to know someone is to find things that you agree about or common experiences. And so that creates empathy or it just creates sympathy, essentially. Mm-hmm. Oh, you've done that. I've done that. Let's talk about that. Oh, you Here's can. something where we overlap. And so they pick something that they think you overlap with them, Batman versus Superman. And then when you don't, that creates this separation, mm-hmm. right? It, it's, it's a negative connection, in a sense, where you're saying, even though it's the truth, we don't have this in common. We're not similar. And so that, I think that can come across almost hostile, where you're saying, I'm not even going to make an effort to connect to you. I'm simply putting down the gate and saying, no, this is not something we have in common. And that can be very off-putting. So that's why I was, so this came up in response to your suggestion where you asked them to explain, like, oh, I don't remember that part. How did it go again? Right. So sometimes it doesn't matter because then they put the gate down because they feel the gate even if you don't mean the gate. But then the the other thing is that, um, I don't know, like you said, it, it gets deeper into the whole connections between people. And a lot of these connections are connections with people where, you, like you said, you wouldn't normally have a lot in common with them so you're just trying to forge a bond out of friendliness but it's not um no that's a terrible idea i don't think that works i don't think i think that sort of idea that 
you put on this friendly facade, you put on this nice facade, you put on this kind facade, and then that's going to help you connect to someone doesn't work. Well, but like these people aren't people where like, okay, um, let's, let's slightly shift to another situation where it would be a short interaction with someone, a temporary interaction with someone, but more significant. Think about hunting for a job, like right. job hunting. You would do this kind of fake front all the time. No. So I think this is a great example. Okay. Let's, cause there's higher stakes in this example, as opposed to like, Oh, my cousin doesn't want to talk to me. Who cares? Whereas like job hunting and stuff like the networking. Well, let's assume for a second that all of these are the first interaction at a dinner party. It's a friend of a friend. Mm -hmm. It's someone interviewing you for a job. It's a girl that you're going out on a first date with. There's two ways that most of those interactions could go. They either go well, which leads to future interactions, or they go badly and you're done. So there's very low downside, you're saying? Not only there's very low downside. In that case, I think the largest downside is that you lie. Things go well. Then you have to keep lying. Yeah. You have this repeated interaction where you're committed to lying. And in theory, then the better it goes, the worse it goes. Because you just keep digging this hole of being an inauthentic self. You create the mask, and then you have to live behind the mask more and more. Mm. And then the real you starts to shrivel and die. So that's, that's the worst. Okay. So I hear that. So you're saying, what you're saying is, because before when we were talking about the whole cousin example, you seem to be pro-lie. Like you seem to be like, well... It's a lot of work and it slams its gate down, which sounds to me like you should lie so the gate doesn't get slammed down. But you're saying instead, no, um, either tell the truth and if it breaks off, who cares? Because there was nothing that great to have gained anyway. Or tell the truth and then offer the hand of, hey, explain it to me. Um, because that way people will be happy. Yeah, or, I mean, obviously... And it's authentic happiness. Obviously, I didn't know about it, but now you've helped me learn about it. Yeah, I mean, there's a hundred different things you could do. You could say, tell me more about that, help me understand it, or no, I didn't see that ban- that Batman movie, but I saw this movie, I saw the original Superman movie with Henry Cavill. Mm-hmm. Did you see that? Mm-hmm. And maybe he says no, but did you see, you know, The Dark Knight? Yeah. And then, sure, let's talk about that, right? Search for the common ground a little bit. Or you could say, I think this is very helpful. I think, first, if you understand that everyone has infinite depth, you know there's something there you can find where there's an overlapping emotional experience. Mm -hmm. And then, second, everyone knows something that you need to know. They have somewhere in their brain this little pearl of experience or knowledge that if you could only find it, your life will be better. And it's hard to find, especially when you don't know them or they come across the wrong way. And that almost makes it a puzzle. How can I, how can I trust this person? How can I empathize with this person? How can I make them trust me? How can I take this conversation from mask talking to mask where we're just pretending to be friendly where we're talking about small talk conversation we're both bored with and get to something where we can have a real conversation about something we've both experienced or something we disagree about but can have 
have civil conversation about. And that's really hard. But it's, I think, again, it's worth practicing to try to get there. Well, here's the question. So you're assuming that we're not going to see these people very much, right? Like this is like, oh, you know, I'm just with this person for a while, and so it's a temporary interaction. So you're trying to harvest... Okay, because I was going to say, it sounds like you're trying to harvest their pearl because you're going to throw them away. No. Which is totally true, like, for real. Like, you're probably not going to see this person again. Like, you know, your co-worker's roommate or whatever. Like, you're not going to see this person again, so, like... You know what I mean? Well, first of all, sure. I mean, you're never going to establish a deep lasting friendship with every person you meet. Well, you don't have time for all that. No one does. And so I think you're trying to make the most out of the time you have with someone. And I think that works both ways. I think if you have a real conversation with someone where you're trying to get them to open up and you're opening up and you're sharing painful memories and they're sharing, you know, their life experience afterward, both of you will agree that that was a better conversation than Oh, did you see the baseball game? Mm. Now, I, I could be wrong. You know, I think we're both relatively introverted uh, and dorky. And so we have less patience for small talk that other people may find simply reassuring mm. or healthy social lubricant, as you called it. Um, but I do think that it's worth trying. And then if you do have a good conversation, the odds that you want to see them again the odds that you're going to have a iterated relationship, I think, improve. It's almost like game theory. You know how in game theory they say you have to cooperate first so that they cooperate. Correct. And if you start off defecting, then you get into this vicious cycle of everyone defecting and mm-hmm. things go to shit. Yep. And so you have to make the first conciliatory move. That's Even, why you're saying tell them the story of your pain. Yeah, or just tell the truth. And make it clear you're telling the truth, right? Because everyone assumes you're lying. Everyone, maybe not that assumes... That was the weird thing with that conversation with my friend. They acted like I was Satan. And I'm like, everybody lies. They're like, no, they don't. I'm like, I'm pretty sure I'm not... Like, I'm pretty sure I'm in the middle of the bell curve when it comes to lying. Mm-hmm. Or at least, like, 60%. You know, like, I'm lying more than 10% on average. But... They acted like I was crazy. Like I was on like 95% crazy super liar. And that's why I started thinking about, you know, because this was a, this was like a, a year ago I had this conversation. So I've had a year to mull over it once in a while. So it did make me wonder, man, do I lie way more than the average person? You know, you've got plenty of time to think about that while you're, um, you know, in the car or whatever. So um, I think everyone lies, which is why you have to make explicit that you are telling the truth. Because everyone assumes that most of the time everyone's lying. That's scary. Make it clear that you're willing to connect, that you're, and that means exposing yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Because I have this image that I use a lot, which is... This better not involve nudity. No. <laughs> so, so there's you, and then there's the person you're talking to. And then you're afraid that you're going to sound silly or be mocked or ridiculed. So you create a mask, armor, a facade that is successful and witty and perfect and has seen all the movies your friends have seen. Mm -hmm. And then the other person creates their mask to do the same thing because we're terrified of exposure. We all have parts of ourselves we're ashamed of. And so at this point, 
you're not having a person talking to a person. You're not even having a person talking to a mask. Mask to mask. It's ma- yeah, it's masks talking to each other. And that is just ridiculous. There is no good there. There's no progress. There's no truth. There's no improvement. There's no connection, right? Like this concept of namaste, the God in me recognizes the God in you. When mask talks to mask, that's impossible. I hear you and I hear you on what a waste of time that is. Like all the time you spend building the mask and then wasting time talking to other masks. I understand what you're saying. Yeah. But it's really painful, especially early on. It's like, a, it's like taking a scab off a wound and the, and the flesh is very sensitive. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you just go up to not even a total stranger, just someone you know vaguely and you're like, you tell them an embarrassing story or you're like, I had this awful thing happen to me when I was 17. You might get ridiculed, right? Like you have to, you have to risk the downside if you ever want to have the actual connection. Um, and part of, frankly, part of what I'm trying to do with this podcast is, is expose myself, is get comfortable saying things that part of me is, Matt, don't say that. People are going to think you're a goof. And getting comfortable, right? Just practicing the habit of exposing ourselves, our true selves. And first of all, realizing, hey, that wasn't so bad. And secondly, the more you expose something, the stronger it gets. If you hide it, if you conceal it, that's when infections happen. And, you know, take the metaphor as far as you want to go. All right. So I believe you, but let me uh, illustrate with an example. Please. Okay. Okay. So this is a story connected to my divorce. So um, in early September, I met with with the person who I'm divorcing, and um, I was talking with them, and they're like, okay, you know, blah, 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 I want to talk to you about one thing. I'm like, okay. And they're like, well, the deal is, as we talk about this one thing, I get to talk for 10 minutes and you can't interrupt. And I interrupt a lot because I'm like a blabbermouth. So I understand, all right, she wants to say her piece, I'll let her say her piece. What's, what's the worst thing it could be? Um, and so I say, okay. And she's like, oh, uh, I know what you did. That's what I want to talk about. And then obviously I'm allowed to give feedback, you know, with the normal conversation. So I'm like, well, I don't know what you're talking about. And then she said a very, very explicit joke that I had said in a Facebook instant message to someone. And she quoted it exactly, which told me, And then she told me later, um, for six weeks, she had tapped my phone and had read every Facebook message I had sent for a month and a half and all my text messages. And I knew she had seen my call log from some other stuff, you know, with like cell phone bill stuff. I knew like, okay, she knows who I'm talking to, but who cares? I talked to a million people and I didn't have anything that was that big a deal that I was worried about. But the instant message thing was very, very bad. Because obviously, like, as we're going through our, di- our divorce, you know, my friend Luke might say, like, oh, how are things going? And you vent a little bit. And then he's like, oh, well, what's the downside? And oh, well, the downside is this. But I still think this. So you're sharing your feelings about the person you're divorcing with your friends and families who think through the divorce stuff. Um, but obviously, you're not saying that for the ears of the person you're divorcing, who it turned out for six weeks had been reading all that stuff. 
Um, wow. So that was bad. <laughs> bad because it was so exposing. And so as a result of that, um, I've had to talk to my friends and people around me and say, like, oh, by the way, um, this thing happened. And uh, I'm very sorry. I would not have violated your privacy with that thing. But this thing happened, so now I have to talk about it. And the first couple times I had the conversation were just awful. Just awful. Like, the first person I talked to about it was my little sister, uh, my sister Kathy in Wyoming. And I talked to her first because I had to get to her first. Because my parents were staying with her. And I needed her to, like, lock my parents away from the computer for a day while I tried to figure out what the heck was going on. Um, So I'm like, okay, Kathy, like, I need you to keep mom and dad away from Facebook and stuff for a day um, while I try to figure stuff out. She's like, okay, I'll do that, but you have to tell me what's going on. Which was a fair bargain, but was also my sister just being nosy. (laughs) Um, And so she was the first one I had to talk to all this stuff about. Um, And so uh, that one was super duper hard, in part because it was my family, but also because it was the first. How did she respond? Um, pretty okay. Like, pretty okay. Uh, there's some other details that I'll get into later that were the details that were sticky mm-hmm. with her. But most of it was pretty okay. And so then after her, I talked to a couple other people. And then the next day, I talked to my parents about it once I had figured out more of what was going on. Um, and my parents' one was probably the worst. But it was the worst because their opinion was the most important. So I'm like, okay, I have to talk to you guys about stuff. You know, like, if, if this guy I was friends with last year because we did fantasy football together, you know, if I get embarrassed in front of him, there's no high stakes. Mm-hmm. Um, if my, uh, the person I'm divorcing sends information to my mom trying to make me look bad and smear me and stuff, that is a really big deal because I very much care about all my mom things. And I'm going to be interacting with my mom lots and lots of times over the remainder of my life. Hold on a second. What were you worried that your parents' reaction would be? Because I can see at least four or five different... Um, I was worried they would be horrified and disgusted by the rude things that I said, and they would think less of me for saying all those rude things. Okay. Is, is the part that I'm, I'm putting forward now. And that is really... So your fear was that... They would be disappointed and upset. In general, you, your wife would send nasty things that you had said to other people. Correct. Including some things I had said about other people to other people. Okay. Like, let's say I'm talking to my friend Biff... And I'm venting about a bad day where I had a fight with my friend Steve. You know, all names have been generic to 1950s <laughs> character. I think people got that when you said Biff. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and we all do that. That's just part of life. Yes. Um, but having all that exposed, again, like, well, I had no more privacy with anything. And um, that it was rough with the first conversations. Um, but eventually I got used to it. And it did feel better to be open. To okay. Move back around to that. But yeah, with my parents, that was the hardest conversation. Okay, so that that's that's not what I thought you were going to say. I thought you were going to say either a they were going to essentially say this is a terrible person, and and you obviously have something wrong with you, Ben, for having married her in the first place, because this no, is no. abysmal behavior. Oh, yeah. I knew they were going to say that part, but that part, like, I can't, like, I'm more worried about the me part. I already know she's a terrible person. Whether or not people recognize she's a terrible person doesn't really matter to me. I'm mostly worried about what my friends are going to think of me. I don't really care at this point what they think of her. Okay. And in then, part because the bad thing they're going to think, I also think is true. Okay. And then the second thing I thought you might say was they would be worried about what they had said. No. No, no one had said anything crazy that they would worry about. 
And they wouldn't care about her opinion of them. Right. Whereas I super care about my friend's opinion of me because they're my friends. Did she ever send anything to anyone? So that's the other part of this is um, she told me all this stuff. And she's like, okay, um, I know all these terrible things you've done over the last six weeks. And by the way, terrible things you've done is not true, right? You've said some off-color things. No, I'm leaving something out of here. Okay. The podcast will not contain a <laughs> I did do a bad thing. <laughs> this is not a full confession. I did not murder any hobos. Okay. It's both what I'm telling you, and that's how I started with my parents. Wait, is that, is that wrong? <laughs> yes, is hobo is. murder wrong, then? Oh. Um, you know, the quality of life's not great. They're still, <laughs> still human, Matt. Um, but no, so with my parents, I literally started with that joke, which is why I thought of it. I'm like, okay, mom and dad, I have to tell you some stuff. Because, but you told them what you did. Yeah, so I told them everything because I had to because I knew Nicole was. Let's just let's just for the sake of conversation say you kicked a cat, right? Which is like the the ultimate bad thing in a movie, right? right. You see someone kick a cat, you know they're the bad guy. Yeah, yeah. So so Cruelty during so during those six weeks, at some point, you I kicked repeatedly a cat. kicked cats. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I was a real jerk to cats. Yeah, you were. <laughs> so I I I had to tell my parents about the cat kicking because they were going to find out anyway, and I would rather tell them about cat kicking than have them find out from someone else. And conversationally, one thing that went great with it, like with, the, again, the scab exposure idea, is I was telling them, okay, I'm going to do this. And the first thing they said is they're like, well, no matter what, just know before you tell us all this stuff, because, you know, Kathy told us something was going on. Um, before you tell us all this stuff, no matter what, we love you. Don't worry about it. We'd rather, like, let's talk about it. See, I Which was a really nice opening thing. Isn't that? I hate when people say that. But they totally meant it. What they meant is don't be scared to tell us about cat kicking. We really do love you anyway. And we know it's just cat kicking. And no matter what, we know it's you. Like, they know me because they're my parents, so they know if I'm kicking cats, I'm probably not doing it because I'm the bad guy in the movie. Here's the thing. Whenever someone says that, and usually you're right, it's just your parents. And I knew they meant it. Like, it'd be different if, like, someone else said it who I didn't trust, but I knew they meant what they were saying. Because they don't say this stuff all the time. My parents are not, like, super mushy. Right. Like, my dad's not like the, good luck at school, son, and shake your hand and you're gone for four years. He's not like that. But they are, you know... Like, our parents are older, so they're more from that school of... Yeah, no, I... <coughs> I understand. So, <laughs> um, what, again, this is a tangent, but what strikes me about when people say that is they don't know what you've done. I'd much rather them just be quiet and listen and then immediately when you're done say, I still love you. What it was telling me, like, it's not the words, but I knew what the meaning was, was that um, I appreciate you showing me your scab. I won't be grossed out. Right. Or if I'm grossed out, I, I will be grossed out because I can't stop it, but I, but I will still look at the scab. Okay. Make sense? Fair. Okay. So I knew that's what they meant behind it. Okay. Um, and it made me more comfortable because I had to show them the scab anyway. I had to rip off the scab anyway and show them the gross wound. So it made me feel better that I have to do this anyway. At least it won't be so bad. Right. Like, you got to go skydiving, but you get two parachutes, so don't be so scared. you got, like, the rogue parachute or whatever, just in case you you die. Um, so that made me feel better that there was a backup. Um, but the, So that happened. Yesterday, I was going out for pizza with a totally different set of friends. I'm picking up one of the friends in the car because I live on the south side. Everyone's up here by Nicolet pretty much. Um, and so I'm coming up here. And so I'm like, oh, I'll pick up um, Preston. And, and take him with. 
He gets in the car and we're talking for two, three minutes. He's like, oh, by the way, I got a weird email from your wife. I instantly know because I've had to do this 20 times, and that's almost a real number, 20 times over the past, like, two weeks, how the rest of this is going to go, and I know how long it's going to take, and I even know we don't have long enough till we get to our friend's house for pizza. So I'm like, okay, uh, I can give you 10 minutes right now. Let me go into it. And um, you heard I was kicking cats, and I promise, like, if you want to talk later about the cat kicking, I will make as much time as you need, because I'm really sorry that, like, you're being involved in this messy gum story. Um, yeah, I'm sorry this is happening. Even if we don't have time right now, I promise I'll give you the time later. Which I figure is the most respectful way I can react to this. Because I wouldn't have told anyone about cat kicking. And so now that everyone's like, ooh, cat kicking, I owe them at least to talk about the cat kicking. Because they're wondering, you know, why am I running around kicking cats? Mm -hmm. um, so after showing your scab 20 times, it is really tougher. Though one reason this metaphor is so good because when you rip off a scab, the stuff underneath the granular tissue, the spot, is never as good as your real skin. And that's just, like, that's going to happen. Like, you're trying to have a scab and not lose your whole arm. Right. But it's going to not be as good as your other skin. It won't feel the same. It'll look kind of gunky. Like, this is life. Oh, well, you're stuck with it. Right. And so um, I can't stop the fact that that's gunky. Yeah. But I am getting much, much better at talking about it with people, including... You know, including the funny story about killing hobos. Like, it works. It makes people a little more comfortable. So I include that now when I tell the story. I think that's a great extension of the metaphor. I just want to make sure I understand what you're saying. You're saying, I have to tell people about the cat kicking. but Because Nicole told everyone about the cat kicking. So I have to talk about it because she told them already. Right. But you do understand that the relationship will be damaged. At some level. Yeah, no one wants to be friends with a cat kicker, even if I had reasons. Right. That is an extreme example of what I'm talking about. But I said that's why, well, the whole reason I went down this road, because your example before where you said, you know, starting out with a story or like, oh, I broke my arm when I was 17, helps create that bond with people. It's totally true. And you said it gets easier. I have a very real example of a very extreme situation where it does get easier. I'm having to talk to people about stuff that I never, never would have talked to them about. Like, this is painful, awkward stuff. This is like, when you talk to me, the painful awkwardness, when you talk to me about your dad dying, mm -hmm. that was hard to listen to, but it was nothing compared to you living it. Right. So me feeling hurt listening to you talk about it was nowhere near what you had to go through to do it. And it was a pearl. It was an important lesson that I can learn from my friend Matt. Right. Because we're all going to need that lesson. I think the other thing that's important here is that, and again, correct me if you think I'm wrong, because maybe I'm just delusional, is obviously our life is the most important life to us. And so everything in our life takes on significance that is disproportionate, let us say, to yeah. how other people see things. Yeah. And again... Kicking cats is bad. Yep. But there are times in my life where I have thought I have done something unforgivable yep. or awful. And I'm just in cold sweats for days whether I should tell someone or confess or they're going to find out. Yeah. And then they do. And I think their reaction is going to be an eight. And it's more like a three. And this works positive and negative. Correct. I'm very proud of something. And I tell someone and they're like, oh, okay. Or I say, you know. 
I did this bad thing. And they're like, oh, well, that was stupid. And they move on. Mm-hmm. Because it's not them. <laughs> right? Yeah. So I do think I, I hear what you're saying. I agree with you. Um, as I said, I have like a big data set at this point with this situation. So I'd say I think this thing is an eight. Almost everyone has reacted like it's a six or a seven. Okay. A few people have reacted like it's a ten. And okay, that shows me an eight isn't crazy. Um, so that's it. And because it's all connected to the divorce. Right. Divorce is something that we all know is a big excuse me. Divorce is something we all know is a big deal. Um, and it doesn't happen every day. It happens like once every ten years or once in your lifetime. Hopefully and it's all bound up with that level of importance. Like the cat kicking is at that level of importance. Hopefully not every ten years. But you know what I mean? Like there are people who have multiple divorces. Yeah. Like I was talking with a friend and he's like, oh, my dad has been divorced five times. Like that's a, I'm like, I don't want to be judgy because I know how bad this feels. But that's a crazy, crazy amount of divorces. He's like, I know we always choke one more and they can carry his casket. But like he was telling the truth. His dad has been divorced five times. That's a funny joke. It is good. I'd assume the son would be the sixth person anyway. That's the funny part. <laughs> Isn't it important to people that they learned about the cat kicking from an active betrayal? Doesn't that make yeah, them more but, sympathetic? Yeah, but they still feel they still don't like me being a cat kicker. They still think I'm an asshole. So even given the way that they found out, yeah, because I tell them because I tell them it's true. I tell the truth that the embarrassing secrets that are revealed are also true. It would be much easier to lie about the things that were revealed when my privacy was violated. But I, I, that route I didn't want to do. Hugh Grant, when he got caught with... Oh, yeah. We talked about this last time. The um, Hollywood Heidi? No, no. It was just... I don't remember the de- details specifically, but I think he was just caught with a hooker, and he went on Jay Leno, I believe, and basically did the perfect apology. He was just... I made a mistake. I did the wrong thing. I need to get better. Not covering it up, not denying it, not softening the blow, taking full responsibility and essentially saying, I understand what I did wrong. Hmm. And I think that's very powerful for people. Obviously, I think people would have preferred to hear about this sort of thing from you directly. I think most people would prefer to never hear about it. Like most people don't care. Like the one of the people who had a ten reaction, where he was more upset than I thought he would be, he said, "Well, I'm I'm that level of upset." But on the other hand, my friends make decisions I don't agree with all the time. He's like, and "Honestly, it's your life. I don't agree with your decision. You know, kicking cats is wrong, and I think it's wrong, and you shouldn't do it. But you know, it doesn't matter. Do that thing that I think is wrong, and it won't stop us from being friends." That's not a ten, then. Oh, but the other parts were a 10. Like, he was more upset about things than I thought were appropriate. Okay. So, I guess just back back to the idea. Yeah, it's unbelievably painful to expose yourself to that person, to anyone. And it's worse when it's family. It's worse when you've done something wrong. But even in that situation... It was, over a longer time frame, the right thing to do. But telling the truth was the right thing to do. Telling the truth and sharing, even if it was under duress, Mm -hmm. sharing something that was painful. 
I agree, and I understand. Uh, you know, the other solution is to never do anything wrong, yeah. and you won't have to ever like explain these mistakes, like never break your bones, and you won't have a painful story. That is an impossible standard. Yes. And people who claim to never have broken bones, you know, metaphorically, or to never have made these big mistakes, are just lying, and they're losing a chance to grow from it. Well, that's the thing, right? You know, everyone has. And done that's a big lie. They're telling a big lie, not a little lie. Yes. A lie that feeds other lies, the kind that we were saying is the worst kind. Yes. The incidence of humans doing horrible things is 100%. And anyone who denies that it's not just I mean, it's wrong on so many levels. They're lying to themselves, which means it's more likely that they'll continue to, to do horrible things. They haven't internalized the lesson. They're lying to other people, which means that they don't respect you. They're not willing to try to connect with you. They're not willing to get to try to stop doing things. It's just, it's awful at every possible level. And I totally understand it. There are innumerable times in my life when I have lied about doing bad things because you're just terrified. Well, it's your knee-jerk reaction. You're embarrassed, like when you're a kid. Did you take the cookies? Well, I know I didn't. I mean, just say you took a cookie. There's chocolate on your face. That's why they're asking you, you know. Right. But our knee-jerk reaction, our natural reaction is just to lie. We don't want to get punished. And I feel... And I feel like this is a, an example of where karma really happens because our instinct is to lie. So we justify the lie and some part of us thinks that we can get away with it. And you can't, even if technically they don't find out the truth. Someone said something once that I really agreed with. They well, said, you're still suffering. That's part of the punishment. Like, the lie causes you suffering because you're working so hard to maintain the lie. So that's one way you don't get away with it. Right. Is un unless you're a sociopath, you punish yourself. Right. Someone told you a story once. No, I think that's a great point. And I think that's... Sorry, so a couple points. First, the story is... Not the story. The saying is nobody gets away with anything ever. And I think that's the right way to think about it. And I think your explanation that even if you think you do, you're still going to punish yourself is, is a helpful way, again, to think about it. And I think that's one reason Catholic confession is such a wonderful idea. Because even if you're not strong enough to tell your wife, you're cheating on her, or your partner, you're embezzling money, right? If you're still too weak to tell the person you need to tell. Telling someone else helps you get that path to where you're like, okay, I told someone, how can I fix it? Like not doing it again, for example. At least you're acknowledging it to someone out loud, and that probably helps you acknowledge it to yourself. Mm -hmm. I think just stating the problem helps us think about how to solve it. You make it real. And then this happens, this happens again to me all the time. There's something that is keeping me up at night. 
there's a fear or anxiety or there's a shame or there's something I'm, I feel guilty about, as soon as I confess it or deal with it or act to correct it, you can get back to sleep. Yeah, like I might face real consequences in the real world, mm-hmm. but I feel better. And that's probably more important. Obviously, there are edge cases, but most of the things we do wrong, I think, could be improved by just telling people. And I think that's one thing that Alcoholics Anonymous gets really right. Yeah, you have to do the forgiveness step. You have to tell people. And so I almost feel... Like, I'm a pretty boring person, and I, I've never murdered a hobo. But I almost feel like I should have three or four things that I can tell people that are true and that are really horrible that I've done. You should have or you do have? I should. Like, I feel at this point I owe you a comparable confession. So well, okay, I'll tell you a story that bothered me for years. And you can tell me what you think. Um... So when I was applying to business school, I was volunteering at two different organizations. And one of them was basically once a week, I would help a kid with his homework, etc. And I thought we were getting along really well. And then one day, the head of the program called me into his office and said, you're out. Like, you, you can never come back here. You're fired. You're, fi- you're, fi- you're fired, fired from volunteering. You're fired from volunteering. And you can never talk to this person again. Weird. And I was like, holy crap. What the hell? And, I'm, and he was like, someone heard you swear. And I was like... Did you really say what the hell and then you accused you of swearing? <laughs> Probably not, but... Well, because, you know, people swear all the time and forget they're swearing. I certainly do. I have a, Man. I have, that's all it takes to be kicked out as a volunteer. They ain't going to have any volunteers. Well, I have a real potty mouth, so... Are we talking like F-bombs or were you like just... Damn, that's a good story, Joseph, you know. I don't think there were F-bombs, but it was probably more like, yeah, damn and shit and crap and bitch and bullshit and whatever. Mm. And part of me was thinking I don't want to consciously avoid swearing because that will be stilted and artificial and I should talk to this person. How old is this kid? 12, maybe. All right. I'd say, because I was going to say, like, fifth grade, yeah, you shouldn't swear. Eighth grade, not the end of the world. High school, honestly, if you're if you're doing the stilted thing, you won't get through to the kid. Like, it will be so inauthentic. Right. But I could see seventh grade as, like you said, edge. Right. But okay, so. At least that was. No matter what they said, you swore too much. At least that, what I was thinking, was that swearing was something that, A, wasn't a huge deal, and B, was probably more authentic than not swearing. And they disagreed, and I was out. And I was really angry about this for a long time because I liked the the kid. I thought we got along. And for someone to have the power to destroy a relationship of mine like that really got to me. How many months did you work with him? Uh, Six to nine, I would say. That's a very long time. I could see being upset after like a year. I mean, it was a school year. Yeah. A year of working with the kid. So that made me angry, but I think what I'm most disappointed in myself about is that I didn't make more of an effort 
to keep up with the kid afterward, sort of back channels. Because his mom essentially emailed me and said, like, look, he has someone new there. I don't think I don't think you as an adult man should continue to see my 12-year-old child, which is very understandable. But it, it left a really bad it, it taste in my mouth. So anyways, Peterson has this thing where he's like, go back in your life. And if there's anything that you can remember that is still emotional, write it down. Because that means it's important. Yeah, it's, your, your memory is telling you this needs attention. It's like pain in your body. This needs attention. Um, I'm totally forgetting some of the words for it. But Scientology has engrams, has this thing called engrams, where stuff that happens to you makes engrams, which are these like symbols on you. And the symbols are bad. It's like psychic scarring. Okay. And if you don't purge your engrams, and when you get reincarnated, bad things happen. Like, that's part of Scientology's idea. Okay. And the engrams were caused by the aliens. <laughs> right. Uh, like, for real. That's really what they say. But the idea is engrams are like psychic scars that you have to purge. And so all the different levels of Scientology are teaching you how to purge the engrams. Because when you're purified, it's like Buddhism. And, like, you get to be done. And, like, you're perfected. And I assume you don't reincarnate anymore. Like, you have to go to Planet Zulu or whatever. <laughs> right. You know. Um, so I like that idea. That's what you're talking about. So I remember engrams because it is a useful idea. It's a psychic scar. You're yeah. saying if you can go back and see these, it's because they're important and you have to purge them. I don't agree with that 100%. Like sometimes you go back and see things and it teaches you an important lesson. Like I've thought a lot about fatherhood and stuff lately. And so I think a lot about being a kid and stuff that happened with my dad. Nothing major or bad. But you know, like, oh, I remember when I got in trouble this time and how my dad yelled at me a lot and I got grounded, blah, blah, blah. But I'm not trying to, like, purge that memory. I'm remembering, oh, yeah, I screwed up there. I After that, I tried not to, like, you know, be out after curfew or whatever. Like, whatever it is I did wrong, it was a valuable lesson. I think that's the key, is you go back to the memory, you write it down in as much detail as possible, and you learn the lesson. And you're essentially, your body's essentially saying, here's a situation you got into that did not end well. But pain you, makes you pay attention, just like physical pain. It's supposed to get your attention. Yeah, exactly. And so let's go back and look at this time and figure out what you should have done so that if it happens again, you know the correct response. You know the correct algorithm. Mm-hmm. And so you go back and say, I was out after curfew. I got into a lot of trouble. If I ever am in that situation again, I won't stay out past curfew. Things will go better. Now you have the answer, and now you can forget about it. Yeah, but you usually don't forget about it. I understand he's saying that's a good way to function with your memories and to, and to grow, help yourself grow, but I don't think people forget about them. Maybe you don't forget, but maybe the emotion lowers, gets turned down. And I, I see this all the time when I have a very traumatic experience, and it's a, let's just say it's a 10 for a while. And I chew on it, and I think about how I could do it better or how I'll avoid that situation in the future. Here's another story. So um, I had recently gone to work for a company, and I went to a very fancy wedding. Uh, connected to the company? Was it a coworker? No, it was just a friend. Oh. But I worked for a finance company. My friend was in finance. 
A lot of the people at the wedding were in finance. This is what we started talking about. This is the dinner party where how do you connect with people and you have to have a mask. Slightly different topic, but... Did you have a mask? No, I think even at that point, this is now almost 10 years ago. But I was... No, that's not true. This was seven years ago. But I... At that point, I was probably over-correcting where... So for a long time, I was very milquitoast. I was very much a wallflower in social gatherings where I was going out of my way to be bland, unmemorable, because I did not want to offend anyone for any reason. I was terrified of being thought badly of. Do you think this was a social anxiety as well, or no, you were just trying to be nice? Or do you think there was anxiety oh, for sure. connected to it? Definitely, there was a lot of social anxiety related to it. Okay, so so that's where I was, and it wasn't working, right? I wasn't forming friendships. I wasn't forming romantic attachments. I was going to parties, having a miserable time, and then coming home alone. And I wasn't even enjoying the time. So I started to figure out that it's important to be more honest with people, to try to connect with them, and that often requires being a little bit more abrasive because maybe you will say something that they don't appreciate or you'll tell a truth that's uncomfortable. I'm not saying you have to walk into a room and announce the worst thing you've ever done to everyone. But if you're talking to someone, you know, you want to try to... Anyways, so I moved towards being more straightforward, more honest, and frankly, probably more abrasive. Hmm. And my guess is that I overcorrected, right? I became a little too blunt. Uh, if I may put this in as a historical context. <laughs> right. So I've known you since 1992. Correct. 1992, 1993. 92. You've always been more abrasive than many people. Okay. And that's not bad, but that's who you are. That's Just like I'm always more talkative and, and too talkative compared to other people. So I would say that if you're recognizing that you even went too far... It was probably, for some people, really too far. Right, right. Anyways, so so I was definitely at this point where I was essentially trying to winnow the crowd from, say, 50 to 2 immediately, where I would say things that I thought two people would respond really well to, and the rest would be like, eh. But the odds that those two would become real people in my life would, would increase. Yep. So... Overcorrected. So, so yes. So, I think at this wedding, I was still in overcourse correction, where I would, I would just go up to people and be like, "Hey, I'm Matt," and I would talk about something for thirty seconds. I'm like, 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 I'm overdramatizing it yeah. here, but I'd be like, "Hey, I'm Matt. Tell me about a time that you suffered," or I'd say, "Hey, I'm Matt. Doesn't that guy look ridiculous over there? Let's mock him together." Or just things that were designed to sort of break the ice maybe too quickly. So I would, uh, to make a comparison that might work more for some people and is also what I'm thinking. So I play the trading card game Magic the Gathering. Niche and nerdy. Right. But enough people know about it. It's like if you walk up to somebody you're like, oh, I play video games. Oh, what do you play? Oh, Grand Theft Auto. People at this point in life have heard of Grand Theft Auto, even if they don't play it. Right. So doing that is a 50 to 2 number, where you're going to find the two people who love Magic but everyone else you're, you're done with. But what do you care? You're there to have fun, so you do want to find the magic players. Exactly. And that's at least 
how I was trying to approach it, whether I succeeded or not, is a different question. Anyways, at this party... Wedding. Sorry, at this wedding, I got very emotional very early for for silly reasons. I got very drunk, and I basically beat somebody up. And... the party organizer came over and essentially said the same thing that the volunteer coordinator said, which is like, I'm kicking you out of this party. Leave her. I'm going to call the cops. <laughs> okay. And I was like, okay, you can't kick me out because like, I've been volunteering here for six months. <laughs> you got that story switch <laughs> because I know 30 of these people and it's going to be just ruinous to my reputation. It might spread. It's just, I can't handle that. So are you negotiating with this guy? I'm negotiating. Okay, you're saying, let me stay, I'll calm down, let me leave on my own terms, I promise. Exactly. I said, look, give me 10 minutes, I'll go around, I'll tell people, great time, I have to bail, thanks for inviting me, not a problem. And she was basically like, okay, I will give you one chance. If anything happens, things go south. I'm excited to see how this goes. Are you too drunk is the next chapter. <laughs> right. Being threatened is a great sober. So I basically did that. I walked around. I said my apologies and I went home. But is, when this, I, is this only how you remember it or later at the wedding? People are like, oh yeah, you got drunk at the wedding. Eh, but you know, things happen. You know what I mean? Like later was your social reputation show that yes, you gauged it correctly or no, you really did screw up. I really screwed up. Okay. Do you think those 10 minutes... I'm helped? no longer in touch with any of the people at that wedding. Uh, yeah. And some of them called me the next day and they were like, WTF, yeah. essentially. And I was like, yeah, I got drunk and I did something stupid. Mm. Um, but what I was scared of that night was that it would get back to my boss, mm. who I had just started working with. And I was like... Maybe someone who I thought was a friend isn't, and will take this opportunity nope. to, to, you know, to tell him. And I really like this job, and I need it. And if I lose it, I could be in a lot of trouble. Mm. And you know, you're alone in a dark room, and you can picture your life going to hell really easily, right? And so I was imagining I lose my job, and then word gets out that I did this, and. I can't get another job Blacklisted, and yeah. things just sort of spiral. Mm. Yeah. So I forget why <laughs> I forget why I was telling that story, but, um, uh, a time when the stakes were actually high and you had to try to, to get it to work. So did, did your boss find out? No. Okay. Do you think it would have been as bad as you thought it would be? Cause again, this is a learning from the past. This is the engram. Right. You were talking about the engram. Right. Sorry. Yeah, exactly. So this was something that was very emotional for a long time. But as I've analyzed the situation more over the years, I've digested it in a sense where I've learned certain lessons. I no longer drink when I go to functions. At all? Or you just like, like try to keep an eye on it? Um, I drink so little that I don't get to the point where I'm tempted to drink more. Mm. I try to control my emotions more in those situations because there's something about large gatherings that make me more emotional anyways but now i can look back and sort of say a it wasn't as big a deal as i thought at the time although it was still a big deal b i know better how to handle myself in that situation and then c just 
just the passage of time and understanding I'm not the same person. All these things turn the emotional dial down of that experience from a nine to a four. But telling people about it, talking about it, analyzing it helps that dial turn down. Mm. But I think if you hold it in and you stew about it and you focus on the regret and you beat yourself up, then it becomes much harder to move past it. If that makes any sense. Yeah, I see how that makes sense. And the other thing as well is um, when you stew about it and beat yourself up about it, you're actually creating more negatives. Like you had initial injury and now you're creating additional injuries down the line. So like maybe it started with you doing something stupid and later you're like, I'm worthless because I got drunk at the party. So you're adding more negative to it. So not just really the first negative, you can also add new negatives. Because you imagine it's part of a pattern that may not be real. Yes. Anyways, let's talk about the story for a second. Okay. So this is a story by Stephen King called Everything... All That You Love. All That You Love Will Be Carried Away. And now you said that this was... Probably one of my favorite things he wrote, and it's short, and one of my favorite short stories ever. So it's both from a guy like... And I like it even if it wasn't from that guy. And meaningful to you, to the point where you said, if someone didn't like this story... Yeah, it's a big deal. You had problems. Yeah, I do have problems. There are several people I know who I shared this story with, and they didn't like it, and it's a problem for me. Like, it makes me feel like we have way less in common than I thought. Okay. Because I don't understand how they can't see any of what I see in here. I understand if someone's like, oh, I don't love Twinkies, they're too sweet. Someone's like a Twinkie, tastes like a banana to me. I don't understand that person. Okay. So what does it mean to you? Um, well, one thing that I love about it is all the rural, like the rural emptiness is not necessarily beautiful. The rural emptiness is sad. Right. Like there's, the whole story is about sadness with the traveling salesman. Right. And he's, this is a story about a traveling salesman in Iowa. Yes, where I went to college. Right. So that's a place you have experience with, and for those of us who haven't been to Iowa, it's just flat. <laughs> yeah, the <laughs> there is nothing there. The flatness is part of the emptiness, and the other thing that's a big deal in the story and metaphorically is everything is being stripped away, um, like a wood stripper, like a scraper taking off layers. And so the main character, Alfie, um, he goes to this hotel room in, in Iowa and he's doing his normal job, like he's doing his route of being a traveling salesman. And uh, But he goes to this motel, and he's like, oh, I'm done. I'm going to kill myself. Like, I just can't take it anymore. And what the story is all about isn't like one traumatic incident where he's like not going back to his years in Nam or something, though Stephen King has those kinds of stories. This is just a lifetime of little things built up, little things built up. And the story is not funny at all, but the character in the story is almost like a dark version of the two main characters from um, planes, trains, and automobiles. Traveling salesmen who have been on the road for years, they know the road journey, blah, blah, blah. Um, Great comparison. And the interesting thing with Alfie in this story is Alfie, like, you know, you you find out over planes, trains, and automobiles, oh my God, like, John Candy's wife has been dead for like five years or whatever. He can't leave the road because he has no home. Mm -hmm. Not that he's poor and homeless, but the, the things he cared about are gone. And so he's trying to build new temporary cares 
because his big care is gone. You know, like his wife is dead. But this story is different because his family is yeah, still alive. Yeah, his family's alive. still there. Yep. But he's detached from them. He's the one who's dead emotionally, so the family doesn't matter. That's what makes this one so much worse. Because we all can understand, like, the, the trauma person being carried away. But Alfie carried himself away. You know, whether he was isolated by his depression or whether it was just like, you know, he's a sad sack or, or whatever it is. Or the job itself. Yeah, but King is not saying in here, and I don't think he has a I don't think he has a theme overall. King does not believe that modernity like strips us away and makes us robots. There's plenty of authors who do totally go down that road, but that is not King's road. So I disagree. I think that story says that explicitly. I think he is saying, here's a job where you have to be away from the people you love all the time. And not only that, you are in shitty hotel rooms. Not even hotel rooms. You're in shitty motel rooms that have no character. They're soulless. You feel no connection to anything. Everything is generic and empty and soulless. And therefore, you lose connection with your family. You have no connection to where you are. Where you are. And that creates depression. Yeah, I I hear what you're saying. I think instead, like, King, his main characters almost always have, like, a flaw. So I think for King, this story, Alfie already had that problem of loneliness and disconnection, and all these places ripped the wound open. Because that's what King would enjoy, is, like, the slow wiggling of the wound opening up and Alfie being ripped apart. Mm -hmm. So these places in the job ripped open the wound, so he was, like, the wrong man for the job, because over the years it destroyed him. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, um, now we're going to loop back to death of a salesman. Okay. Where that guy was destroyed over years because he was the wrong man for the job. He is a tragic. Willie Loman is tragic because he was given a job he couldn't do. Like he was a small man who couldn't lift those weights for all those years. All right, so I'll disagree again. I think Death of a Salesman is about an everyman. And what he was trying to say is if you put anyone into this soul-draining occupation where, to our point before, you're going to strangers every day and trying to be liked uh-huh. very quickly. So you have to put on a mask. And that mask, if it doesn't work, you don't eat. Yep. And so you're alienated from everywhere you go because it's always new. And, you know, common belief aside, new is scary and it's not always fun to be somewhere new every day because it's the unknown. At the same time, you're meeting strangers every day who you, by definition, because of your job, are not allowed to try to connect to. Mm -hmm. You have to lie to them. You have to fool them. And as a result, he has no connection with where he is or the people he meets. And that is cumulatively destructive to your soul. And the same thing... I think it's destructive to him, but I think it's destructive to him more than other people. I think we're supposed to see Willie as weak. I don't think he's an everyman. Really? Yeah. Okay, because I saw this character in Stephen King's short story mm-hmm. as an everyman, again, where if you put anyone into this position, they are destroyed. Um, okay. I didn't see that, but I wasn't really looking. Like, I've read this again and again and again, and when I read it, I love the details. I don't really go for the big thing. Like, I love this because it's a finely painted picture, not because of its ultimate truth. Okay. It's a really well-drawn story. I agree. I mean, look how, okay, look how pathetic he is. And for those of you who haven't read the story, 
The only thing that he can find meaning in is graffiti in men's restrooms. Yeah, that's that's his like secret wish as he wishes he could write a book about graffiti. Right. He has a little notebook where he writes down the best graffiti he can find. And I think I think that is emblematic of a soul that is in despair, that is thirsty for meaning and knowledge and connection, and this is the only this is this is the best he can get. Mm-hmm. Which is pathetic. And Instead of being with his family, he sees across a cold and deserted farm field a house with a light on. Mm-hmm. A farmhouse. A farmhouse. And he imagines a happy family inside. And he basically leaves his life up to them and says, if the light stays on, I, I may get the details wrong. If the light stays on. Yep, he's looking, at, he's looking out his window and he's like, all right, I'm going to count to ten. If the light's still on, I'm going to walk across the field for half an hour knock on the door and see who's there. Like, you know, pretend my car got stranded or whatever. If the light goes off, I'm going to kill myself in the hotel room. Right. I think I can empathize because I think most people can empathize because if you've ever been in a strange place and stayed in a crappy motel by yourself at night in the winter, it's one of the most depressing things you can do. Mm -hmm. Not that you're alone. It's that you're alone in an empty world. And there's no possibility of connection or of love or of warmth. And that is depressing. <laughs> it's what's the point? Why wouldn't I kill myself if this is all life is? Yeah, and I think... So that's what I think is interesting is if someone reads the story and they don't either see the little theme... Of how sad this guy, how sad this guy's life is, and how well painted the sadness is, or they don't see the big theme that you're talking about about the dehumanization of this job, about how this job crushes people. Mm-hmm. I don't understand how someone can read this story and say that it's like there's nothing there, that it's bland. Like that's originally why I recommended it because like we were talking about books and stories, and I was saying, well, this is one, this is a a, a chunk where people may not love it, but they're going to have a reaction. Maybe the reaction is going to be like, oh, that guy, man, he should have killed himself. His life was the worst. Right. Or, oh, capitalism is the worst. All he does is work for the dollar. Or, wow, all those awesome details. I've seen those truck stops. I've seen those graffiti. He really captured that. That's really interesting how well he captured, you know, all those uh, little rest stops where you go get a candy bar because you have to pee because you've been driving for four hours. You don't really want to stop to pee, but, man, you got to pee because you got to keep going because you got to be there by so-and-so time. You know, we've all done that. Um, I don't understand how someone can have no reaction to the story. And that's why I came up because you said, like, what would I recommend if I was going to recommend this thing for people to look at? Mm-hmm. And some people really never try King because they think that he's just, you know, like a book you read on the airplane or like a dumb horror movie that you see when there's nothing good on. And I think this shows that there's a lot more to his stuff. It's not all gold, but this gold is super great. And there's plenty of other silver that people look. It's a fantastic story. And I think... So I just saw the latest Mission Impossible yesterday. We were going to, I remember you had asked me to see that instead of the eighth grade movie, but I had just seen it the week before. Right. Yeah, go ahead. And so I think of the spectrum, essentially, where you have works of art that are essentially just action. There's no real depth to them, but... Some parts of that I actually thought were pretty good of the Mission Impossible movie. Oh, no. I don't like Mission Impossible, but I think it was a pretty good action movie, and there were a few parts that were really, really great. I loved it. I thought it was a fantastic movie. 
But I wasn't going in there thinking it was going to be a Godot play. Yeah. Sorry, not a Godot play. Uh, waiting, waiting for, for Godot. Godot. I understand. Yeah. But, and so I feel like if you're going to have action, do it right. But I really also like the other end of the spectrum. If you have a work of art that is about lack of action, that's about stillness, uh, you know, Murakami is another author who often fits this pattern, or Wes Anderson. Nothing really happens, but they're building this universe that's incredibly poignant, in this case, melancholy. Mm. And that's wonderful as well. So it's possible someone would not like this work because they're like, oh, Stephen King, there's going to be horror and blood and action. And then they read it and they're like, this is not what I expected. Therefore, I went into it with the wrong mindset. Yeah. I can see why that went to disappoint someone. Yeah. I wish more of his stuff was like that. Um, yeah, but you can't paint everything that carefully. There's just not enough experiences. Right. It's like someone who writes an awesome... We had also talked about this before. Someone who writes a great first novel or a really great first album for a band, and then everything else the diminishing returns because they just can't get that spark. So maybe the spark was based on the truth and now I only have one story to tell. I think that's a deep truth, but that's fine. It's okay to only have one story. I mean, as a consumer, that's fantastic. There is so much art out there to consume. The problem is not finding enough. The problem is finding the stuff that's really great. I mean, between podcasts and Netflix and the Kindle and just your public library... Yeah, I mean, I can't consume fast enough. So I'd much rather someone say to me, here is 10,000 pages of Stephen King, read these 12, than go say, oh, I really like Stephen King. I mean, there is so much value in someone pointing out the gold among mm -hmm. the pyrite. So thanks. I really, I really enjoyed that. This is something I struggle with all the time. When I want a certain kind of relationship with someone, and they don't. Yeah. And, you know, at this point in my life, it's usually more, you know, platonic male-male relationships where I think someone's interesting and I want to talk to them yeah, more. Yeah, let's be bros. Let's hang out sometime. Let's, they're like, no, thanks. Yeah, and they're like, look, Matt, I have a job, a commute, a wife, and three children. Yeah, no time. You aren't on that list. And that, that hurts, right? I'm like, that sucks. I wish we could talk more often. I wish we could share ideas more often. And that's simply not realistic. And so I say to myself, I mean, the thing I try to tell myself in this situation is you can't change this person. You can't create something that isn't real. Therefore, thank them for not lying to you, stringing you along, pretending. They made a clean cut, essentially. Accept that and put your energy into other things, into other people. And in the long run, that is a much healthier thing to do than to fight against the inevitable. But I thought where you were going to go with that was the realization that you don't have four of those five things. So 
you don't have the family or the kids right. or the job, and you might have a different commute. I thought you were going to say that you see that they're already carrying all that stuff. So you understand. Like, it would be fun to hang out, but you understand where they're coming from. I do understand. Instead of, instead of saying, well, it hurts, because I understand it hurts. But the weird thing is they have all that stuff that is so core to them that's different from you. So what do you have in common? Do you really have that much in common? Or no, they just happen to also like Howell's Moving Castle. Well, that's it exactly, right? So for me, ideas are more important because I don't have the normal things in my life. And so... The other things. I wouldn't say they're necessarily normal. They're just the other things that are more common. The things that take up 95% of the average person's time and energy, Mm. I don't have. Yeah. I would say kids is the big one that I'm disputing. For sure. Like, as a guy with no kids, I notice a lot other people without kids. And that, yeah, like, 75% of people have kids. But it's not 95. And I think that it's wrong for us to assume that 95. 75. Fine. But of that 75%, 95% of their time oh, is yeah. probably absorbed yeah. no free time. by these things, right? Correct. Correct. And so, even if they do want to talk about ideas, it's simply not as important as keeping their children alive. Yeah, they can't. And that's, again, something I just have to understand. All right, that's where we're going to end this week.